Okay, hello and welcome to this week's TES podcast. I'm Martin George. I'm joined by Helen Ward. Hi, Helen. Hi. Ed Doyle. Hi, Ed. Hello. And Helena Mass. Hi, Helen. Hello. So, um, Ed, let's use the word pernicious. Pernicious. Yes. What's pernicious? The accountability regime. Tell us why. <laughs> uh, I've got a thesis of <laughs> 250,000 words. Uh, no, it, specifically in this context, this is a reference to the news of Monday this week, I think, that uh, celebrated headteacher Stephen Tierney, he of Blackpool fame, um, has decided to step down from headship at the age of merely 55. Um, those listeners, I doubt there are many who haven't heard of Stephen. Uh, he was a founding member and is now chairman of the Head Teachers Roundtable, uh, was an early adopter of blogging, was an early presence on Twitter, um, and has become generally a noise for kind of sensible, pragmatic headship. So he's, he's one of the people listen to because he's mainstream and expresses, yeah. and expresses real concerns in a rational, calm yeah, way. Yeah, and I could be wrong. I don't think he's particularly prog. I don't think he's particularly trad. I think he just runs a very good school and now very small mat in a very in very tough circumstances, mm. aka white working class, coastal, northern Blackpool. Yeah, um, and. Uh, yeah, it came as a surprise to a lot of people that he was stepping down, like I say, only at the age of 55. Um, and, the, and the reasons were, um, for those who know his work well, not terribly surprising. Essentially, he's had enough of Ofsted, stroke accountability, pernicious, mm. and funding cuts. The reaction I said, uh, as I've written about in today's TES leader, op-ed, whatever you want to call it, uh, reaction I think was telling. Lots and lots and lots of people came out and said, effectively, and this is to paraphrase, blimey, if Stephen can't hack it, who can, essentially? You know, like this is some kind of um, canary in a mine yeah. for yeah. a broken system. Do you think it's um, anyone in Whitehall will sort of, will heed this, will hear the canary? I don't know. I mean, maybe, probably not. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing is that you know uh, you have Ofsted in the background making all these curriculum change, all these inspection changes, refocusing their inspection workforce on curriculum and so-called quality of education. And Stephen's quite clear because in some ways what they're saying would be the kind of thing that he'd want mm. to hear, but he's quite clear that he has absolutely no faith that they will deliver it. Yeah. And in fact, this week, funnily enough, the Head Teachers Roundtable and the Worthless Campaign. Uh, published their um, their response to the Ofsted consultation and and it's damning. Yeah. So effectively, what Stephen's saying is right. The changes to Ofsted sound okay, but they're not going to work, and they're certainly not enough to make me stick it out. Well, cheerful start. Cheerful start. <laughs> um, does it get any better, Helen, if we talk about the gender pay gap in schools? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, tell us. Give why. us something. So this is the second year of the gender pay gap um, reporting requirements. Yeah. So, and it was discovered last year that schools and academy trusts, you have to have over 250 employees. So this doesn't necessarily capture everyone. But of the people who have to report, did seem to have fairly large gender pay gaps. And this seems to be because, or one of the reasons it is because, um, they employ a lot of teaching assistants who tend to be female, who tend to be on low pay. 
So I was just looking at how it's shaping up again this year. And um, when I looked, obviously you can you can file at any any time during the year, um, and across all employees, not just school and academies, about three thousand six hundred had when I looked at them. Um, and about 9% of those are schools and academies, but 58 of the 100 employers with the top, with the biggest pay gaps were schools or academy trusts. So it is one of those things where we're saying, we're looking again at working practices in schools. People will always say, we should make this clear, this is not unequal pay for, you know, for the Doing same work. The same job, yeah. So men and women teachers should be getting paid the same rate for the same job. Men and women teaching assistants would get paid the mm. same rate. So it's illegal not to pay people the same rate for the gym job. But people aren't doing the same jobs. Yeah. So the question is, are women getting enough of the high paid jobs? Is there equality? Are, are women feeling that they have to take the low paid ones because they're the only ones that offer flexible working, which is a big as we know, I mean, it's been a yeah. big, big deal in schools and it's becoming more about part-time work. And they do have kind of ideas on things that that employers can do. So include multiple women in shortlists for recruitment and promotions. These are all on the government website, the gender pay gap website. Um, maybe use structured interviews for recruitment and promotions. Use tasks when you're looking at interviews, which I think schools tend to do anyway. You, you will normally be teaching a lesson as part of your as part of your interview process. Salary negotiations, well known that men are much more likely to negotiate mm. salary than women. And of course, nowadays you can negotiate salaries for teachers. It's not, you know, there are, you know, we've done stories in the past of, especially in the shortage subjects, people negotiating quite yeah, high amounts. So all these kind of things are, you know, are things that can be done. It's not given yeah. <laughs> that women should be paid less than men yeah. uh, as a whole as an average and i saw so. in your story you looked at some academy trusts you know this year's data compared to last year's and some the gap had actually got a little bit bigger hadn't it yeah i mean i haven't looked in detail at those and it's very difficult to look because it could be you know if you had a uh, female ceo replaced with a male ceo you could get would skew things quite often. yeah, yeah. Big so in, in fact i mean i've looked in the story and in general across the media people will tend to report the median pay gap rather than the mean so the median is the mid like the average woman like the midpoint of the average uh, and, the, and the midpoint of the male pay and compare those because you can with especially in you know if you get very high salaries a few people at the top would skew the average yes of course yeah i think the 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 the, the great example someone gave was um if Jeff Bezos walked into the room, we'd all become average millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But actually. In this room, we'd all become average million millionaires. Yes. Um, uh, I, I guess one of the interesting things to take away is that, in fact, this tells us more about the way the workforce is structured than yeah. the pay gap, yeah. which you alluded to. So um, the total failure um, to hold on to um, middle leaders who are women. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, in fact, we had a piece on um, <coughs> online this week um, sort of satirising the, uh, characterising would be a better word, the struggle that mums who are middle leaders have balancing their lives and their professional jobs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is, a, if you look at the data, there is a crash of women in their 30s leaving the profession. Yeah. yeah. You know, so this, this, I think this, it's almost less about the gender pay gap and more about really, really structural problems in the sector that it needs to get hold of. And like you say, part-time and flexible working is increasingly seen as the key. Yeah. Plus, I expect, I mean, from when I did it last year, some of the unions would say maybe pay teaching assistants a bit more. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, we have to find some budget for that. 
no doubt. Um, looking at the magazine this week, I mean, a couple of stories I wanted to look at, both to do with a bit of research. Um, first one is about um, another cheerful one, the existential crisis with terrifying implications for all education research. Who wrote it, Martin? Me. <laughs> and it's a very good piece. Of Tell us more about <laughs> it, Martin. Um, well, it, it's this thing called the the uh, replication crisis, and it's one that's hit areas like psychology and bits of medicine really hard in recent years. And the fear is that it's a wave that's about to crash into the sort of education world. What is it? So the problem is that um, when researchers have tried to replicate the findings of really influential bits of research that might have influenced policy or spending, they haven't got the same results. And so this idea is that you want your science to be replicable. Mm. You, you do the research, you get the same outcomes each time. And Which in hard science is exactly what? does and should happen. What right? should happen, yeah. And if you want your social scientist research to be valid, you'd want something similar. You'd want to be able to say that, you know, if you think class sizes have this effect, you know, when you repeat the study, you should be able to find something similar, not something that's contradictory. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Larry Hedges, who won a $4 million, $4 million prize last year for educational research, has says, yeah, this is an existential crisis terrifying results because of all the vast amounts of money that's poured into research yep. and the way it influences billions of pounds of how money is spent in our school system. Um, and it's one that we've even found out that the Education Endowment Foundation, sort of the government-backed research body in yep. England, is actually going over thousands of pieces of research that it's used for its advice for teachers to check whether they are valid and secure or not. So are we effectively saying I imagine I'm exaggerating, but we're effectively saying that RCTs in education don't work. I think. Well, I think the concern is that they might not have worked in a lot of circumstances, and there are issues where, if um, perhaps only positive findings have been published in the past, or perhaps people who've done the research had a, a stake in what was going to be found or perhaps the um, number of schools involved in the trials weren't big enough. So there are all mm. sorts of issues that when they all come together can mean that perhaps the RCTs or other bits of methods haven't worked. And presumably if this kind of the threat of undermining of trust in this evidence you know, that we're basing our education on, would lay us open, would lay schools open to, well, who do you trust? I mean, you're, you're yeah. back to the salesman and the bad science thing that Stay this was always supposed to try and yeah. replace. So, yeah. The interesting thing is that this probably wouldn't have been a story 10 years ago. You know, education research of this kind, of the kind that the EEF does, really wasn't much of a thing, was it? Yeah. Um, and, and then very quickly it became as they say, the young people say, a thing. A thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then very quickly that thing became the basis of an awful lot of policy, mm. as you say. And if it turns out that thing wasn't really a thing. Ooh. Ooh, where <laughs> are we? Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I talked to, I mean, so Kevin Collins, who heads up the EEF, uh, you know, and he was saying, well, it's not a crisis, but it, it, it's a challenge. But I mean, he did say, well, what's the alternative? I mean, we've got research, and at the EEF, he says they've got some pretty good standards to try and minimise the risk of you know, replicability. But if you don't look at what evidence we have, are you relying on gut instinct? Are you relying on prejudice? Are you relying on myths? So I think the advice for a lot of teachers, um, you know, from people like Kevin I've been talking to, was, well, 
look at the research, but look at your own context yeah. and sort of make sure you understand how the research was, was done and how secure people think that research is. And then yeah, make an informed decision yeah. about what you do. So what, you know, one last thing on this. To be fair to Kevin, to be fair to the EEF, they've always said that. Yeah. You know, you should, you should use it to inform your practice. It should be another aspect of in your decision making. But the problem is, and this sort of goes back to the pernicious accountability system and offset and everything else, you know, teachers and heads might hear that, but they also crap themselves when the inspectors knock on the door. Yeah. And they use stuff like this as a crutch. And I don't think, there's a lot of schools out there, I don't think take the EEF research within context and take other factors into account. They just, especially on the People Premium Toolkit, they just use it. Yeah. That, that's their default, that's it, I'm thinking. You know. yeah. And because teachers are very busy people, lots yeah. of pressures, that, that, yeah, they need to grab easily digestible. So it's sort of easier said than done, I think. Yeah. Now, Helen, talking of staying with research and indeed the Education Endowment Foundation, you've got a really interesting piece looking at EdTech. Yes, so um, the EEF have got a, a new report out um, called the Digital Technology to Improve Learning Guidance Report um, and this looks at technology in the classroom. So it's uh, all the technology um, that, that might be used um, to uh, in learning. It's not kind of like the, the backroom technology the schools might be using. Um, and it's um, reviewing the research and it's encouraging teachers to do well, not so much teachers, but school leaders to do just what we've been talking about. Look a little bit deeper at, you know, some of this research um, and weigh up whether it's going to be worth investing in uh, a new piece of technology before just jumping ahead and, you know, believing the hype and, and going in with it. I was going to say, I mean, there's been lots of, I mean, they've looked at and they've said technology can be effective, but then yeah. the word can is kind of in big, bold, flashing letters, you know, yeah. so, so if you're going to do it, do it right in an informed way. Yeah, and they, they offer some advice for how you can uh, make the most of the technology that's on offer and make sure that you're using it in a way um, that is going to support learning and isn't just going to be, you know, throwing away money on something that looks snazzy um, or is going to kind of perhaps tick a box. Um, you know, it's about making sure that it does um, suit your context that it is being used meaningfully and that teachers are trained in the right way to be able to use it well. I think that comes across the whole teacher training thing. So it's not just you buy the tech and unleash it. You've then got to then, in a continual way, I guess, kind of make sure teachers know yeah. how to use it and understand it. And, and it's that sort of the, the human side of it is just as important as the technical it's side. moving yeah. away from the kind of new labour era of milk and honey when, you know, here's 200 iPads, Whee! smart boards. Yeah, smart yeah. boards, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the classic. And the rest. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's in in some ways it's a, a sort of a warning against um, you know the adoption of edtech, but at the same time it's saying that edtech itself isn't necessarily the problem. Um, you know there are plenty of tools out there yeah. that can be really really helpful in terms of reducing workload, um, in terms of um, supporting um, students with special educational needs but um, they need to be used properly otherwise they're not going to work and so we need to think a little bit you know smarter about how we're using this technology yeah and also they highlighted was it three areas where um, edtech actually found the schools can really get good use out of edtech yeah so um, in terms of explanations and modeling uh, pupil practice and uh, assessment and feedback those are three areas where if schools want to look at um, for edtech solutions which might have sort of slightly more promising results those are some good areas to look to um, but the the report is um, you know really 
a lot in a lot more detail than I'm explaining here. Sure. So the, the the best thing for school leaders to do is to go away and read it and <coughs> and use this excuse me, use this um, you know, when they're making their technology buying decisions. Yeah. Now we know that the I mean the DFE in Damien Hines now has someone who's a real champion of EdTech. Yeah, he is. And I think yeah. we're expecting shortly, imminently, the DfE's long-awaited EdTech strategy. Yeah, Brexit allows for it, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they've been going around the country on these LearnEd um, roadshows. We, we, we've both sort of hosted sessions. Yeah, them, trying to get head, heads and teachers to sign up to EdTech. So because I, I would expect it to be quite boring. You know, it, That's going to be a wasted couple of hours of my life when it no, comes no, on. But it, no, but so the point I make about boring is that it, it, in a good way. Um, right, that doesn't help. <laughs> so as we've all, this conversation has already alluded to, you know, the conversation about EdTech has really changed in the last three or four years. And it's moved from, you know, the old days, listeners um, who remember BET in the early noughties, you know, when it was all... Bells and whistles. Bells and whistles and explosions and, yeah. you know, teaching was going to be disrupted and schools were going to be transformed and learning of the future and no need for teachers and all this stuff. And actually it's become really quite granular now about what works. And actually yeah. I think a lot of the DfE agenda is being forced by um, the workload crisis and, and, the, uh, and the funding cuts. And yeah. they see EdTech potentially as a solution to both of those. So I suspect it to be probably quite sensible and probably quite welcome, I just thought. Yeah, excellent. Well, I look forward to that, that boring article I'm going to write about it. <laughs> it you'll make it sexy as, Martin. <laughs> as always. <laughs> um, well, thanks very much for listening, everyone. Um, let's see you next week.